Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. This episode features my intense, dense, compelling interview with Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, followed by a quick chat with my friend Ricardo Salvador, who helped me parse that complicated conversation. I believe it's an interesting package, and I think you will too. As always, I hope you'll not only join us today, but subscribe, review us, give us many stars, send us feedback, questions, suggestions, answers, whatever. Our email address is food at markbitman.com, and please check out and subscribe to the Bitman Project newsletter at bitmanproject.com. Okay, on to Secretary Vilsack. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. 
For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. I was among the people who were disappointed when President Biden failed to consider a novel choice for Secretary of Agriculture and instead chose Tom Vilsack, President Obama's two-term secretary. Secretary Vilsack's background, he was governor of Iowa, which is really ground zero for industrial agriculture. He did little to endear himself to the food movement in his previous term, and he showed himself to be a friend of big food in the intervening years, led me and others to bemoan his new appointment. Of course, Trump's secretary, Sonny Perdue, had set the bar so low that any change would have been welcome. Yet Tom Vilsack, some call him Vilsack 2.0, has been more than a pleasant surprise. His department started by supporting the long overdue Justice for Black Farmers Act and has proceeded to make progress in a number of different arenas in the last year, acting especially compassionately regarding the SNAP and WIC programs during the pandemic. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it's not just me saying this. My friend Ricardo Salvador who runs the food program at Union of Concerned Scientists and is among the most knowledgeable people in the country when it comes to food policy, has also expressed support for the secretary. Secretary Vilsack may not be a revolutionary, but the incremental changes he's making are welcome, if overdue. When his press office reached out and asked if I'd like to have him as a guest on our podcast after he gave a talk at Columbia, where I teach at the Mailman School of Public Health, I jumped at the opportunity. And as I think you'll agree, he made for an interesting interview. Our time was strictly limited, so I tried to keep my mouth shut, as you'll hear. Still, there were a number of aspects about both the Secretary's talk at Columbia and our interview afterwards that confused me. So I reached out to Ricardo afterwards and asked him if he would listen to the recording and chat about it with me. So what follows are two interviews. The first with Secretary of Agriculture Thomas Vilsack, the second with Director of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Ricardo Salvador. Thanks for listening. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us on Food with Mark Pittman. You bet. Glad to be with you, Mark. A sort of general question to start. It didn't take COVID for those of us who were paying attention to know that people with less money often had trouble buying good food, and it didn't take COVID to recognize that people with chronic diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure were more susceptible to becoming seriously ill when they contract a powerful virus. But if we can put the tragic aspects of COVID aside for a second, to the extent we can, your appointment to your third term, I don't know if you counted a second or third, but as Secretary of Agriculture, could be said to have happened in a way, at an auspicious time, a time when change was possible, people were optimistic, uh, funding was available. Could you just briefly describe some of the accomplishments and why they're significant of that the department's made that you've made in the course of the last year? Well, as you say, there are, were some people that fully understood uh, the challenges that we face with reference to diet-related diseases and the cost, uh, both in terms of human life and in terms of economic loss. But I think the pandemic put a finer point on it. With empty store shelves, with long lines at food banks, I think the awareness of, of the general public was elevated to the point where we were able then in the American Rescue Plan to encourage uh, Congress with President Biden's leadership to put resources into uh, that bill that would give us the capacity to begin doing some very important and different things. It also, I think, gave us the encouragement and the impetus to take a look at our existing nutrition programs to decide whether or not they, they needed to be changed. We saw with the pandemic an increase in SNAP benefits, but we knew a cliff was coming. And so it was important and necessary for us to figure out how do you avoid that cliff? Well, one way you could do it was by looking at the Thrifty Food Plan and doing something that hadn't been done for 45 years, basically recalculating the foundational calculation of that benefit, which resulted in an increase. We took a look at our WIC program and we realized, you know, we really have to look at this differently. We can't say that it's just a nutrition program. It's a public health program. We need to rebrand it. Uh, we need to figure out why only 50% of people 
uh, are currently utilizing WIC uh, who are uh, eligible. Uh, we need to figure out ways in which we can begin the transition with schools that have faced such an incredibly difficult time. Uh, how can we help them during supply chain disruption with additional resources, allowing them eventually to transition back to that day when they were providing the healthiest meal available for kids because of nutrition standards? So I think the elevated awareness of food and the significance and importance of it uh, gave us some flexibility and freedom with the resources from the American Rescue Plan. That combination, uh, I think, drove us to think differently about things, and, and I think that different thinking has continued. There are many components to improving both SNAP and WIC. Um, I guess we should say that WIC stands for Women, Infants, and Children. Benefits for both, and you've done that. Among them is getting benefits to people, you just mentioned this, who are unaware that they qualify for them or who, even if they're eligible, have trouble applying or, or um, meeting the qualifications. Can you talk about the department's plans to address that? Well, let's talk with SNAP because it's a slightly different situation because SNAP is administered by states. So the key here is making sure that there's leadership at the state level that understands the significance and importance of providing SNAP benefits to those who qualify, both in terms of the families receiving SNAP benefits, but also the economy the local economy that's generated and supported by additional SNAP benefits. It is surprising to me, it may be surprising to uh, your listeners, that so many governors don't understand and appreciate the SNAP program they're supposed to administer. They don't pay attention to it, and so they aren't really aware that only 65 or 70 percent of the eligible people uh, who are eligible for receiving SNAP are getting SNAP. They're literally leaving money on the table. Uh, and so what we're doing at USDA is to make sure that we're reaching out to governors to say, hey, take a look at your eligibility stats and find out where the percentage is. And if it's not 80, 85 percent or so, you need work. You need to do work and we'll help you do that work. But you need to be aware of this issue uh, and you need to be aware of the money you're leaving on the table. At the same time, with WIC, we have partners, we have agencies we need to figure out what we're not doing, what they're not doing, that would enable folks, particularly people of color, to be able to participate in this program. I'll give you one example. We're trying to figure out ways in which we can couple WIC with other benefits. So uh, I've got a program in Iowa called Count the Kicks. It's a program that basically encourages moms to count the kicks of their baby during pregnancy so that they can determine if there's maybe potentially a problem and avoid stillbirths. And it has a tendency, stillbirths have a tendency to be much higher among African-American women than white women, for example. So to the extent that you can create a, a relationship between a program like Count the Kicks and WIC, you get a twofer. You get the benefit of those folks getting the benefit of WIC and the nutritional advantage of that. You also get them with a strategy to make sure that they reduce the risk of stillbirth. So it sounds like that we ought to be doing more of that kind of leveraging, kind of partnerships, kind of connections. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about some of the expansion in the WIC program that's happened in the last year or so. First of all, during this time of increased cost, the bonus buy that we put in place provided just a little extra cushion uh, during the tough pandemic months when people were unemployed or where employment was impacted and affected. Now that people are going back to work, the challenge, I think, is to make sure that the benefit package that is in WIC represents a broad array, a broad choice, a broad opportunity to introduce uh, pregnant moms, young children, to a wider variety of fruits and vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables, in a way that entices and encourages them to try. Because we know that once they try, they become consumers. Once they become consumers at an early age, they take that consumption into, into adult life. And we know more fruits and vegetables uh, will allow us to begin the process. And man, this is, this is a tough hill to climb. Uh, begin the process of reducing the obesity levels and the chronic disease potential that carries with obesity that we currently see with our young people. We have far too high a percentage of our youngsters currently at risk of being obese, and that carries with it some serious consequences in the future. So WIC becomes one of many vehicles we need to use to try to address that issue. There's uh, education of families through the SNAP-Ed program. There's the SNAP its benefits itself and making sure that, uh, that we use double-buck programs, ways in which we can encourage those SNAP benefits to be used at farmers' markets to buy fruits and vegetables where they get a little extra cash as a result to do this. We need to look at ways in which we can 
and continue to improve school meals in terms of nutritional value, but also better linkage between local producers and schools that farm to school opportunity needs to be enhanced. I mean, there's a multitude of things that we need to do and are doing uh, in order to begin to address this issue. You mentioned double bucks, which is something I, I know about and have talked about. I know you run many pilot programs. Um, I wonder if you'd talk about some of the more innovative ones. I know a little about Gus Snips, and, and you can mention that, but also whether any of these pilots are on the verge of becoming whatever happens after a pilot, a real program. Well, the GusNip program did receive additional resources, and for the benefit of your listeners, GusNip is a program named after Gus Schumacher, who was a tremendous advocate for local and regional foods. Gus passed away, and this is a good memorial to remember his passion. But the program essentially, we, I, we like to refer to it as food is medicine. We like, to, we like to see this as potentially a long-term program in which we link up with pediatricians and other, other physicians. And as they're prescribing particular treatments for a particular illness, that they take into consideration the prescription of a nutritional uh, aspect, uh, fruits and vegetables that could be consumed that might have a, uh, a municipal benefit uh, in addition to being good for individuals to eat. Um, and we think the GusNip program is a way of helping to fund or encourage uh, folks to take advantage of a food as medicine program. If they knew that in addition to the prescription they were getting from the doctor that they got a coupon that basically allowed them to go into a grocery store and get those fruits and vegetables to, uh, at no cost or little cost, it will encourage more of that. In terms of uh, permanent programs, it's really about incorporating the results of that, showing the results, and then encouraging Congress as it puts together a farm bill to include additional resources and mandatory resources for programs like that. Then it becomes a more permanent uh, addition as opposed to an ad hoc, uh, we beg, borrow, and steal to try to find the resources. Other pilots that, that you think are interesting? I know there's a CSA program. Yeah, the, you know, the farm to school uh, pilot, and that's what it is, but there's no, there, I don't think there's anybody in America that leverages the resources from the federal government more effectively than folks who are engaged in farm to school programs. Uh, it is amazing what they do with these uh, limited resources, but we're seeing a, a slight increase in that program, and I think it's going to become a more permanent aspect. The linkage is beneficial because, A, it keeps money, uh, it helps small and mid-sized producers because it provides a market opportunity. Uh, B, it, it certainly provides more fresh product going into schools, which is better for the kids. C, it, it keeps the money in the community instead of you know, uh, giving it to a, a, a vendor that's a thousand miles away that delivers to you a bunch of frozen whatever. That money basically goes to some other community where the wealth is created in some other community. So it keeps the money in the community. It helps to support jobs. A lot of, a lot of benefits to this program. And so we want to do more of that. The innovation is really going to come, in my view, when we begin to acknowledge that the department has more than the responsibility of addressing food insecurity. That has been the mantra forever for the department in terms of food assistance. It's about food insecurity. It's about making people be able to, to be able to buy food. It's more than that. I think we now know it has to also be about nutrition security. It's a dual responsibility. People can be fed, but not well-fed. And we want to make sure that what we're doing with our programs begins that transition from just being fed to being well-fed. Using your standards, there's a terrific site at fns.usda.gov, um, the Healthy Eating, Eating Index. So using standards that we find on that site, a minority, a you could call it a super minority of Americans eat adequate amounts of fruit, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. In some of those categories, consumption, adequate consumption by your definition is under 10%. And by yours, you mean the USDA's? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't yeah. mean your person. Sorry. Ours in yeah. a way. And by the same standards, a majority of people eat too many refined grains, sugar, sodium and saturated fats. So everything is topsy-turvy. It's a, sort of the opposite picture we'd like to see. It's a frightening picture. So kudos to you for trying to address the inadequacy of our diets when it comes to eating enough of the right foods. But the other side of the coin is that we have to limit the amount of ultra-processed food in the American diet. An estimated 60% of calories in our food supply come from ultra-processed foods. And yet, in the printed material you distributed this week and in your talk today at Columbia, you don't talk about ultra-processed food, not directly. 
but it's ultra processed food that's the biggest threat to public health and it's you do discuss that that threat so in my opinion this is something we've discussed sort of in my opinion radical steps are needed to change the, the food supply and that means among other things addressing the kind of farming that we support if we grow mostly corn and soybeans and corn and soybeans are being used primarily to produce junk food and to feed industrially raised animals, it would arguably be better to support the kind of farming that produces the food you want people to eat. So long-winded introduction, sorry, but your thoughts on that? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think the most appropriate way of addressing the role of ultra-processed foods in the diets of Americans might be as we begin the process of preparing for our dietary guideline discussion that starts uh, uh, for 2025. Uh, it starts with a series of questions that need to be posed to a series of experts, and the series of experts take a look at the research. The research then is disclosed, and there's a conversation and discussion about that, and then from that, a set of recommendations are formed. And I think that, uh, you know, I think it, it is important to ask the question. Uh, and so hopefully, uh, while the Health and Human Services basically is the main lead agency for this iteration of the dietary guidelines, we do have a role to play at USDA, and hopefully we're able to inject that conversation. Uh, it will not be without uh, controversy, uh, but that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we, we need to ask the question, and we need to find out what the research tells us. When I started this job again, I was struck by an ERS report that came out that showed that 89.6% of American farms do not generate the majority of farm income for the families that farm them, which is another way of saying that uh, if you're a small or mid-sized farming operation, you have to have two or three jobs, which is another way of saying good luck with trying to convince the next generation that that's a, a life they want to lead. Most farmers are not full-time farmers. Right, which, uh, well, they're full, they're, they may be full-time farmers, but they may also be full-time something else, right? Uh, and so th that led me to conclude that one of the responsibilities of the Biden-Harris uh, Department of Agriculture should be more new and better markets. And by more new and better markets, we're really focused on local and regional markets, and we're focused on small and mid-sized farming operations to basically create the opportunity for them to survive. So that leads you to a completely different conversation about what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about farm to fill in the blank, farm to school, farm to a restaurant, farm to a grocery store, farm to uh, institutional purchaser. And all of that basically lends itself to uh, a, a different method or different approach, a different, uh, a different set of market responsibilities and signals. One of the reasons we have the farming we have isn't because farmers woke up one day and said, you know what, I think I'm just going to do it this way. No, they woke up because the market said, we want food that's uniformly produced. Here's an interesting statistic. During the pandemic, one processing facility didn't care about its workers. And so a lot of workers got COVID. And some of those workers tragically died. It was an outrageous, absolutely outrageous. But what happened to the farmer during that situation, when the plant closed down, they had to continue to feed their hogs, right? They continue to feed them. When you feed hogs, well, they get bigger. When the plant reopened a couple weeks later, the hogs were literally too big to go through the processing plant because the processing plant was designed for a particular sized hog. Efficiency was the name of the game, all right? Because we want food that is prepared, food that's quick to eat, food that's quick to quick, say we, the majority of Americans, figure that they don't think about it, right? They want to be something quick. They want to be able to go home, put something in the microwave and feed the family, or they want to drive through a drive-thru and pick up a bag and start chomping as they're driving. So the farmers responded to the market. So the question is, how do you change all of that? Well, you change the market dynamics. You create more new and better markets. You create local and regional markets. You create local processing facilities that speak to the local producer, that provide the local producer competition for where they sell their livestock, that allow them to go into the grocery store and say, you consumer, you got a choice. You have a choice of this locally produced pork chop that was produced in this way, or you have maybe a less expensive pork chop over here, maybe. But you know what? 
the money that you spend over here stays in the community. The money you spend here goes who knows where. So I think part of the strategy here is to create more new and better markets. The second aspect of it is to say to farmers, look, guys, only 10% of you are making it in a sense, right? So, so why is that? Well, because you only got two ways to make money. You grow your crop and sell it, or you grow your crop and feed it, and then you sell the livestock. Those are the only two ways that you're making money. Well, how about if you could make money with climate-smart agricultural practices? How about if you embrace regenerative practices, and as a result of embracing those practices, there is a, either a government support to do that, to try it out, or there's a private sector ecosystem market that will reward you for the carbon you're sequestering or the greenhouse gas reduction that's occurring on your farm. How about if we could measure that and basically market it? That's a third category of profit. Well, the last time I was in Iowa, which is a state I quite like, actually, um, a lot of farmers were saying, if the infrastructure were different, then I could grow different things. And that that's kind of what you're touching on when you're, when you're talking about the local economy. Again, these guys don't wake up thinking this is the way I'm going to farm. They, they say, what's, what's the market telling me? The market says we want a pig that the hog that, that's this size. Why do we want that? Because we're producing McRibs. Why are we producing McRibs? Because, you know, Mark and Tom want to drive by the, maybe not Mark. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's that's the reality. So, I mean, instead of castigating the producer, as we sometimes do, understanding the what drives all of this, and that's how you affect the change. And the change kind of starts with consumers. And consumers are sending a message now. And that's why farmers, 10 years ago, when we talked about climate, oh, my God, what are you talking about? No, 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 talk about that. Now? We will likely have, I think, 100 or more applications for the billion-dollar fund that we set up to support climate-smart agricultural practices and to create what we like to refer to at the department as climate-smart commodities, commodities that are grown in a climate-smart way. There's, we think there are going to maybe hundreds of applications for those resources because farmers now get it. Why do they get it? Because consumers are saying, I want to know how that was produced. I want it sustainably produced. Not just consumers here, everywhere. You said at your talk before that you were constantly looking for a simpler way to explain my plate. You you confessed to being confused by the food pyramid. Food pyramid, yeah. <laughs> and to help people figure out what a good diet is. And as part of my free consultancy service, I think I don't think it takes an app. I don't think it takes Alexa. I don't think it even takes a graphic. I think it takes a sentence. And this is my sentence. Eat more plants. We know what those are. Fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, whole grains. Eat them in as close to natural form as possible. Eat fewer ultra-processed foods and eat fewer animal products. That's a good diet. That's a paragraph. Well, <laughs> semi-paragraph. I can show you. It's only three lines. It's a paragraph. Um, all of that may very well be true, but there are factors that go into the decision that people are making about what they eat, right? One factor is the availability of all of that. One factor is, uh, is the cost of all of that. And what we're trying to address with our focus on nutrition security is to begin having a conversation about, about all of that, right? And you know, the reality is Americans have sent the message again to the market, we really don't like high food prices. We, we, we would prefer to walk out of the grocery store with 90% of our paycheck still unspent as opposed to 85% or 70% or 50%, which is the case in many other countries. I mean, forgive me for interrupting you, but you know as well as I do that the intersection of low food prices and high health care prices, well, direct correlation, there, right? There is in your mind, in my mind, but not necessarily in everyone's mind. It's not a, it's not a given. It's not what people think when they're in Iowa at the local high V as they're walking out. They're not thinking, gosh... I, I spent more money today, but by God, I'm not going to have to spend as much money with Dr. Brown and the Mercy uh, Healthcare Clinic. I mean, they, they, they haven't made that connection, right? Because we haven't made it for them. We haven't made it easy for them to understand that. Uh, and that's part of the focus on nutrition security is making people begin to think differently about the Department of Agriculture and its role. Is it just giving a SNAP card to somebody? Is that all we're supposed to do? Is it just getting a meal in that school lunch, 20-minute period of time for kids to gobble down? Or is there something 
broader or more significant that needs to be done. I think there is. And I think the nutrition security argument basically broadens considerably the message to the point where we say more fruits and vegetables. That's the beginning of that conversation. Um, you know, the, it's one thing to say you should eat more of this or that, but what if this or that isn't available or as available? Or what if you don't know how to, how to produce this or that? I've started cooking uh, at my household when my conscience gets uh, impacted by the fact that my wife has produced, you know, I start doing over 50 years of marriage, how many meals she's come out, I start feeling really guilty about the um, imbalance of all of this. And I say, hey, honey, let me cook. And then panic occurs because now I have to produce. But I only want to spend about 30 minutes producing it. So I'm, I'm really keen on 30-minute recipes. We're going to send you some books when we're done, but yeah. <laughs> okay, 30-minute recipes. And, you know, it's it's pretty simple. You get a skillet, and you can produce some healthy choices and some good things. I've learned a lot about seafood recently, which is good, you know, a little different way to produce seafood. And, 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 and that's not easy to do in Iowa. When you think of Iowa, you don't think of seafood. You think of pork. If you're in Colorado, you don't think of seafood. You think of beef. I mean, it just depends on where you are. So it's an education process. And what I'm trying to do is to take the judgmental aspect of out of this, because when you have that judgmental aspect of it, you basically create a us and them kind of thing. And God, we've got enough of that in this country, way too much of it. So to me, it's like, uh, it's not us or them, it's us. You're stressing racial equity in, in some of the department's improvements. And again, kudos for that. I know that you're aware of USDA's history of racial inequality, but I wonder, um, if you just want to comment on this emphasis. And before you answer, I wonder if there's a willingness on the department's part to talk about reparations and even land reform to address past inequities, especially those affecting descendants of enslaved people. As you've pointed out, we do have a history. It's transitioning. When I was secretary before, the focus, what I was urged to do, was to provide compensation to individuals who had experienced discrimination by the department. That was the focus. There was a Pigford case. There was a Keepsigle case. There was a Garcia case. There was a Love case involved African-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, and, and, and women, farmers. And that was the focus. And I remember going to the White House, going to the Oval Office, and saying to President Obama, Mr. President, we do not have enough money in what Congress has approved to be able to provide any measure of justice, much less an appropriate measure. We need at least a billion dollars more in Pigford. We need more resources for Keep Siegel. We need the Justice Department to be more engaged in all of this. And it turned out that we got more resources. And not everybody was satisfied, but over 20,000 folks were re received benefits and payments. And we cleared the deck of a lot of cases that had been pending for decades against the department. When I came into this department now, it's a different conversation. It's a conversation of the cumulative impact and effect of discrimination on a group of people, not on an individual farmer, but on groups of farmers, right? So when black farmers didn't get loans or didn't get loans timely or didn't get loans at the same interest rate, what happened was a gap was created between those who'd got the full service at USDA and those who hadn't. And that gap has grown over time. Because if you could put a crop in the ground, your interest rate was lower, you profited more. When you profited more, you had more resources. When land became available, you had a chance to buy the land when your neighbor didn't. So you got bigger, your neighbor stayed the same. Over time, serious challenges. So in the American Rescue Plan, the administration and Congress basically did two things. One, they said, let's provide some resource for debt relief. Now, debt relief would basically begin to narrow that gap for those people who are doing business with USDA. We're the lender of last resort. If you it's like if you can't get credit anywhere else, you come to USDA. So these are the these are the folks that are on the edge. These are the folks that are may or may not make it, right? So Congress appropriated money, uh, directed us to, to provide debt relief. We began providing that debt relief and immediately were sued. Uh, in 13 different lawsuits claiming that this was unfair to uh, white producers. Those suits then created an injunction which enjoined us, we're enjoined right now, from any further debt relief. So we're fighting that lawsuit and trying to figure out ways in which we can potentially 
create some kind of debt relief that would begin the process of closing the gap. The second piece of the American Rescue Plan created a smaller fund of money that essentially said do three things. One, expand technical assistance. What we know is that by virtue of the relationship, the poor relationship between African-American farmers, Hispanic farmers, and others, and the USDA because of these, this history of mistrust, that these people don't know what the programs are. They don't know how to access the programs. They don't think the programs work for them. They don't think they have a chance of getting the program benefits. So by using resources from the American Rescue Plan, we're now hiring, if you will, firms, groups, community building organizations that will now, who are trusted in the local community to do the outreach, to say, hey, here are USDA programs. We'll walk you through the program. We'll make sure that you qualify for the program. We'll make sure that you get benefits. It begins to create a relationship that hasn't existed. So we allocated $75 million. We, we, we entered into contracts with 20 different organizations. We allocated additional resources recently to expand that to even smaller, very, very small groups that represent smaller populations. The effort here is to try to extend uh, awareness of our programs and to get people involved. The second aspect of this was market access. And how can we expand market access for these uh, underserved, historically underserved producer groups? Well, now we've started to use our procurement power within USDA. Our temporary assistance, food assistance program requires hundreds of millions of dollars to be spent and invested with local producers. So we create a market opportunity for these producers that hasn't existed before so that we can continue to strengthen and solidify that market. And the third aspect of it was land access. How do we create programs, ways in which we can expand land access? Before we could even get to that, we had to do the heirs' property. And the heirs' property rule was not done by the previous administration. They ignored it. We have actually completed it. And we now have over $120 million in a resource that's available. You know, let's say we would be, give you money. Uh, we would give you money. And then you would lend that money out to heirs that were trying to consolidate ownership of land so that that consolidated ownership could now qualify for USDA programs. If you have a fractionated interest, you can't call it. Why do you have a fractionated interest? Because mom didn't have a will, uh, and grandmom didn't have a will, and great-grandmom didn't have a will. And by the time it passed on, you've got a 109th interest in this land, and you've got 108 other relatives. Well, we give a someone the ability to consolidate, to buy those fractionated interests, consolidate. So we're looking at the land access issue. We're now implementing the heirs' property effort. We've got three groups, lenders, who have received money from this program. We hope to see more. So there's a series of things going on right now, which we think begin to address the issues that you've raised. You know, I think what we'll end up doing is providing resources to nonprofits, nonprofits will take those resources. They will they will basically buy land, and then begin to make that land available at next nearly no cost to uh, minority producers, so that they can essentially over time create enough resource that they can purchase their own land uh, and and begin to create some equity in it. Thank you for that answer, and thank you for your time. I'll reduce my number of frivolous questions to one, which is something we ask everyone, which is. What did you eat for dinner last night? Uh, oh, <laughs> I had, did you cook? No, Mr. I didn't Secretary? cook. I, I, in order to get here, we had to catch a flight. I was delayed because I was at the White House at a cancer moonshot uh, cabinet meeting, which agriculture is part of, started by the First Lady, but the president stopped in and made an impassionate speech about cancer and the need to contain it and eradicate it. And that made me late enough so I couldn't have dinner at the restaurant at the airport. So I ended up having a, a small steak at uh, at uh, nine o'clock. Yeah, the old um, turkey club in the room. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's it was a steak, but it was uh, yeah. All right. Well, I know you have other commitments. Thank you again for your Thank time. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, folks. A word from our friends at Made In. Did you know that most of the dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in made-in pots and pans? The braised short ribs? Maiden, maiden. The Rohan duck, maiden, maiden. The heritage pork chop, you got it, maiden, maiden. Which isn't surprising. Maiden has been supplying top chefs and restaurants with high end cookware for years, for the simple reason that maiden makes exactly what demanding chefs are looking for. Their carbon steel cookware, for example, combines the best of cast iron and stainless steel, gets super hot, and is rugged enough for grills or an open flame. Best of all, Maiden is sold online, so their professional-grade cookware is far more affordable than other high-end brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes on menus all around the world have in common. They're Maiden, Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's MadeInCookware.com. Thanks. Hi, folks. We have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day, and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So, what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BITMAN. B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. 
AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. I'm here with my friend, my mentor, my advisor, my brother from another mother, Ricardo Salvador, who is head of the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists and um, knows as much about food and food policy as anyone in this country. And I wanted to talk with Ricardo about this conversation with Tom Vilsack. First of all, welcome, Ricardo. Thank you for joining me. Great to see you, Mark. The world in which I live is the political world. And Secretary Vilsack is showing up as a much different secretary than he was in his first term, and is also doing a lot of the things that the food movement has been asking of the USDA for many, many years. It isn't just that he's doing new things, it's also that across the administration, he's populated that department with a lot of people that are very knowledgeable about the kinds of reforms that we want to see. In fact, many of them are actually members of our community that have been recruited into the USDA. So our community is basically those that want to see a food system that is fairer, that actually supports sustainable production of our food, and that actually recognizes many of the things that were done wrong in the past and have better ideas that they want to implement. So. Um, these people are now inside the department. And it means that as we see the department roll out programs, whereas in the past, many of us were relegated to essentially being critics, you know, in the peanut gallery. Now we have direct access to this department at all kinds of different levels, including the secretary, who's been very receptive to critiques about what the department is doing. So we have the opportunity to refine things that the department is doing. What I mean when I say that where I sit is in the political world is that I can put myself in the secretary's position and very easily imagine all of the different people that are pressuring him to do things that they would like to see. And historically, there's only one set of people that have really had direct access to the secretary of agriculture and to the billions of dollars that the department uh, gets to expend. And now that set of people is vastly increased. What do you think the most significant things are that we can expect from him? He outlined some of the things he's done on on WIC and on um, SNAP. They seem important and useful. What else do you think we can look for from him in the course of the next? I mean, we know that he and the administration tried to do some compensation for some of the injustices done to black farmers and Republicans have been fighting that. That was a, I don't know if it was a radical step, it was an overdue step, but it was a bold step. They're a little frustrated about that, you can tell. What else do you think we might see from them that's really valuable in the course of the next year or two? Yeah, I can give you a few examples, but I also do want to underscore the importance of what you just noted. That department historically has been actively a discriminatory department. That department is responsible directly for the displacement of generation of African-American farmers, women, Native American farmers, and sanctioning the exploitative agricultural system that we have. Their role was essentially to support the very small set of people that own the factors of production and agriculture. 
that's why it's very notable when the tenor of the department changes and they not only acknowledge the past damage that they've done, but have actually set up an equity commission to actively get advice on the structural reforms that they need to make in order to get at the root cause of their discrimination. So that's pretty significant. And that's one of those places where I mentioned that members of our community are now working directly with the, with the department. Now, the other place where I, I think we can see some major gains is in the area of climate change. Now, they're a long way from doing the things that I think would really be significant. But we're talking now about a Department of Agriculture that acknowledges that climate change is real, that uh, humans have caused climate change, and that there are things that humans, and specifically those of us engaged in agriculture and in food, can do to reverse climate. They could have done some really dumb things as they came into uh, this uh, administration uh, and basically just followed the pattern of coming up with yet another label for sending money to the same people in agriculture. And this time the label would have been climate change. So they could have just said that they were gonna pay out money to farmers that already uh, receive support from the department. Uh, but this time under the guise of getting them to adopt, uh, quote, climate friendly uh, practices. And as long as you're supporting a, an agricultural system that features row crops, where you're disturbing the soil periodically, where you're hauling away most of the biomass that you generate, you're really not going to do anything permanent about climate change. Um, it isn't just about stopping the emission of greenhouse gases. It's about actually reversing that, capturing that carbon dioxide and biomass and soil organic matter, and uh, essentially forever, not just on a temporary basis. So to their credit, um, even though they were under tremendous political pressure to show that they were doing something about climate change at the very beginning of their term, they actually took their time to study all their options. But then here we go back to the first comment that I made to you. Rather than being on the outside making these criticisms, now we have an administration with whom we can talk about these things and they, they're responsive. They, and I mean literally, they respond immediately when you say you want to talk and that you've got better ideas. And we know that they're listening because some of those ideas actually get adopted. But how do you do these things if you're not willing to challenge existing big food, which is yeah, how oh, it seems to me. I mean, yeah. I, I said to him, you won't use the word ultra-processed food. You won't talk about regulating monoculture. You won't talk about serious land reform. I'll qualify this by saying he's the best secretary of agriculture probably of my lifetime. We need somebody who says, if 95% of the crops in the United States are grown in rows, are grown in monoculture, do use chemical fertilizer, do disturb the soil all the time, use hybridized seeds, use machines exclusively and so on and so on and so on. We're really not addressing the fundamental problem and not only not the fundamental problems of agriculture, but the fundamental problems of eating because he still insists that a lot of, um, a lot of the problem is going to be solved by consumer demand, by educating consumers, by individual choice, by people making the right decisions, and so on. And I said 60% of the calories in the food supply are from ultra-processed foods, so people buy ultra-processed foods because that's what's out there. So how do you change what's out there? He doesn't seem to be interested in changing what's out there. I agree completely with you that this is not about individual choice and that what we need to change is the range of options that we have to choose from. There's the component of big agriculture and what you've asked, and then the component of big food. He has very little purview in the arena of big food, but he, he is a major player in the arena of big agriculture. And going back to the point that I made earlier, if, let's say that you or I became Secretary of Agriculture. The Secretary of Agriculture does not have the ability to decree the changes that she or he wants to see happen. Um, the Secretary operates under the, the mandate to essentially deliver on federal policy with some discretionary authority. So the difference that uh, Secretary Vilsack is making is all within the space of the discretionary authority that he has. And so that means 
he it, let, let's say that he did want to do away completely with row crop agriculture, just to come up with an example. Let's say that he wanted to outlaw concentrated animal feeding uh, operations. He, first of all, does not have the authority to do that. The only levers that he would have would be to try to figure out whether there's a way that he could withdraw federal funding that supports those kinds of programs. But he's mandated to execute those programs by federal law in the form of the Farm Bill. That's where the changes actually need to occur. So um, uh, many of the things that we've talked about that are good things that he's doing, for instance, talk about uh, the climate change issues that I described to you. There is nothing in the Farm Bill that says he needs to do those things. And to the same point, there's nothing in the Farm Bill that prevents him from doing the things that he's doing with climate change. That's where his discretionary authority is. But there is language in the Farm Bill saying he's going to support row crop agriculture uh, and to the extent that he's supporting grain feed production through row crop agriculture, he's supporting concentrated animal feeding operations. But I'm not suggesting that Secretary Vilsack come out and say I'm doing away with row crops and I'm doing away with factory farming. I would suggest that he might say, I'd like to start to move away from row crops because this is not the farming of the future. And I understand how monoculture, I'm using row crop and monoculture synonymously, I guess, but that's fair enough. Yeah. I understand how monoculture supports industrial production of animals, and I'd like to cut back on that also. So I'm going to propose a 5% reduction in farmland that's being used for row crops. And here's how I want to transition that farmland to being used in an agroecological manner. I'm going to work with the commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration to see what we can do about reducing the harm that factory farming is causing. Just that's moderate. That's not radical no. stuff, but that's a step in the right direction. And I I wish I could hear that from him. I wish I could yeah. hear those kinds of things from so, him. So, uh, first of all, uh, we agree completely on that, and that actually is happening. And so, here's the thing. The, this department is a huge, huge uh, department. It is doing so many things that even those of us whose business it is to track what they're doing have to work really hard to see and then understand all of the programs that they're modifying, the new things that, that they're uh, doing. So while there is no official support, say, for uh, agroecology, they have invested significantly more in supporting organic agriculture in lots of different ways. So that means identifying who organic farmers are and providing greater technical assistance all the way to investing more money in research into organic agriculture. There is land that is in row crop agriculture that should not be, and the department has programs to encourage that that land actually be put into conservation uses. And he's also been pretty clear when he's been asked about opportunist programs, say in response to the Ukraine war, uh, that would pay farmers ostensibly to compensate for the loss of production in Ukraine by converting some of that land that shouldn't be in agricultural production at all, ostensibly again, to produce wheat. And he's, he's been pretty clear and as bold as the Secretary of Agriculture can be in saying that wouldn't be wise to do, that it wouldn't be good to turn back the benefits that have been invested in that conservation land. So many of the, the things that either are happening or are beginning to happen. And what I see is that that department, for understandable reasons, and also the secretary, because he's been there before and he was a different uh, person he was than uh, when he was there before, is basically, basically laboring under the impression that it's the same Department of Agriculture and that it's the same secretary. So don't get me wrong, there, there are things that definitely need to be uh, critiqued and where pressure needs to be applied, but we also need to guard against putting them in a situation where they can't win for losing. They're doing many of the things that we've been asking them to do forever. And so we just need to be in a position to see them. And uh, as I've mentioned before, it's our job to do that. So we're seeing that, but it may not be visible to other folks. When it comes to these things, could be that if I don't see it, very few people do, I'm paying attention. If land is not good for farming and it's being put 
into conservation, I see that as a positive thing as well. But, you know, at the same time, what we want is land that's good for farming to be used for farming well, instead of just saying, oh, we're going to take the worst land for row cropping and put it in conservation. We're not going to take the good land for row cropping and put it in poly cropping, put it in strengthening biodiversity, put it in carbon sequestration, put it in farming the way that we want to farm. But okay, I I keep leading you on and promising I'm going <laughs> to stop and now I'm going to stop. And um, I don't think we're disagreeing. I think it's maybe it's my job to be a little pushier and your job to be a little more understanding or something like that. Well, it's actually interesting because in my interactions with the department, they actually see me as pressuring them. And they say, you know, it's your job to do that. We, we understand that. You know, let, let me just add one last thing because you, you mentioned something that I didn't address, which is that um, something that you would like to see as a secretary that more actively resists the pressure of big ag. And uh, that is a difficult political position for any cabinet secretary to be in. But um, if you've been listening to the speeches that he's been making to his traditional constituency out in the field, so in person, not behind the shield of a, of a Zoom screen, but standing in front of them at major conferences, uh, such as, for instance, the Farm Bureau uh, conference, he actually is saying that times have changed and that they need to figure out how to get on board with climate change and that there are programs that the department is putting in place to help them do that. So he, he is aggressively challenging them. You know, he's, he's not out there coddling them or pandering uh, to them. And, and again, that is a very different thing than you normally hear from secretaries of agriculture. Yeah, he's certainly different than he was 10 years ago. That's, that's clear. And he says he's going to start cooking, which is kind of great. <laughs> yeah, he could have no one better to help him with that, Mark. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Obviously, this wasn't a cooking show, but I don't want to disappoint those of you who look forward to our weekly recipes and um, sort of in honor of Secretary Vilsack's quest to cook more. Here's a classic one-pot pasta dish that's incredibly simple, but still manages to impress everyone you serve it to. This is one-pot pasta with butter and Parmesan, and it is an unusual preparation. Take a large pot and put two tablespoons of butter in it over medium, medium low heat. And when the butter melts and foams, add a small onion or a large shallot chopped up and cook until that softens, say three minutes or whatever. Then add a pound of any pasta. I think it's easier to work with cut pasta for this, rigatoni or penne, but you can use long pasta, it will work. Raise the heat a little bit and cook stirring until the pasta is glossy, coated with fat, and smells a little toasty. This will just take a minute or two. Add some salt and pepper, and then a half a cup of dry white wine or water, and let that bubble away as you are beginning to sense this is cooking pasta as if it were risotto. And then just add half a cup of water or so at a time, stirring after each addition when the liquid's absorbed, add more water. The noodles should not get too soupy and you should not let this dry out. You should certainly not let it stick. Keep the heat to medium or medium high, stir frequently and keep adding water as necessary. About 10 minutes after you've started, uh, you should start, the pasta will soften. You'll see that happen and you can begin tasting it. When it's tender but still has a little resistance, and this could take well longer than 10 minutes, um, even 15, it's ready. So stir in another couple tablespoons of butter, about a cup of grated Parmesan, a little more water if necessary to produce a kind of sauce that coats the noodles, taste and adjust seasoning, and serve that right away. That's about as basic as it gets and about as good as it gets too. I'd like to thank Secretary Tom Vilsack and Ricardo Salvador for their time and remind you all that we'd love your feedback at food at markbitman.com. Thanks also to Kate Bittman, Catherine Lowe, Davis Lloyd, and the people who helped on this episode, including Jen Lee, Joe Rena Ferry, and in particular, Kate Waters. Our theme music is All the Hurts by Moby. 
Remember, you can find us on bitmanproject.com, and it will be great if you subscribe to that as well as to this podcast. In any case, check us out next week when we'll have someone great. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.